0: Welcome to the Nourished with PCOS podcast. I'm your host, Sam Abbott, registered dietitian nutritionist and PCOS nutrition expert. I'm here to help you learn how to manage PCOS and support your hormones while also having a healthy relationship with food in your body. You can improve PCOS symptoms and labs without dieting. Get ready to feel better with PCOS and leave diet culture in the rearview mirror. Hi, Letitia. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I am so excited to chat with you about all things PCOS. Um, Can you tell everybody a little bit about yourself and what you do?
1: Oh, yeah. So my name is Letitia, and I am going into my senior year of the diet tech program to become a registered dietitian. But woof, woof. Uh, I know I'm really excited <laughs> about it, getting closer every day. And, but I have 15 years of experience in healthcare. Um, most of my career in healthcare has been nursing. Uh, I've worked, um, skilled nursing at bedside for a uh, little over a decade and actually left my nursing career to join uh, the health coaching community. I've been health coaching for about five years now. And um, my experiences in that health coaching have kind of encouraged me to go back to school and become a registered dietitian. And um, it's just kind of funny, like I'm I'm where I am supposed to be kind of feeling now that Mm -hmm. I'm in dietetics. I just don't think I knew that being a dietitian was a thing and (laughs) it was like 15 years ago, or I might have went straight into it, but, but yeah. So, um, and I, a lot like you, I prioritize a PCOS. So I tend to do a lot of advocacy and work with people who are living with PCOS.
0: Amazing. And you mentioned that you're back in school to be a registered dietitian or an RD. Um, I thought it would be fun for listeners because there's so many health professionals online right now that are marketing themselves to PCOS. I thought it would be fun to talk about the difference between a registered dietitian versus other nutrition type coaches. And maybe we could start by you telling us a little bit about why you decided to go back to school.
1: Because you were already
0: a health coach. So, mm -hmm,
1: yeah, I was a registered health coach. So once I left nursing, I became a registered health coach. My certifications were in holistic nutrition. And then I also um, went into like the personal training and um, in eventually into like functional health coaching. So I had a lot of training in actual health coaching, which included nutrition, but I think for me, having a background in nursing, in nursing, you have a scope of practice and you have ethics and all of these things. And every move that I made as a nurse, there's always this, you know, voice in the back of your head of, you know, will this hold up in court? Is this, you know, what you're supposed to be doing? Like you you practice with that mentality every single day because there are lines that you have to practice in between. And what I noticed with going into health coaching, there was, there are no parameters. There are no governing bodies that tell you what you can or cannot do. Um, So throughout the different types of certifications that I had and the different training, some, um, like in the personal training uh, education, it made it pretty evident of like, hey, you know, you're really limited to what you can talk about when it comes to nutrition. You always need to refer out where Some of the other trainings I received in nutrition was telling you, hey, you're the expert. (laughs) You're you're the expert that, you know, like, you know more than what they do. That's why they're coming to you. And um, I also will have to say there were some biases. That were in some of these things. Um, I'm going to to be honest, in the beginning, my nutrition training was very well set in uh choosing organic and non-GMO and you know, like a lot of lot of those ideologies around nutrition. I just did not feel comfortable and I knew that I didn't want to go back to nursing. Mm-hmm. And I saw myself working in nutrition, especially considering it being so valuable to, to people with PCOS. So it was like, okay, I need to protect myself, <laughs> first mm-hmm. of all. Um, I, I need to go practice. I, I need to have a parameter of what I'm supposed to do and what I'm not supposed to do um, that keeps me protected, my business protected. But also, I wanted more education of, like, how can I learn more so that I can help people in a better way? And, um at the time I was getting really involved in PCOS advocacy and I was seeing dietitians, And, um, I think that that really like struck the light bulb for me of like, Oh my goodness, I have to go back to school to be a registered dietitian. Then I will have the scope of practice. I will have like the proper evidence-based education. I will, you know, be able to help in a better way while also being protected. Um, and it's been the best decision for me. (laughs) Like I would recommend it to anyone um, in the health coaching space because you're just, you are not protected. A lot of people are jumping to it. um, And I don't think that they're thinking about the long-term legalities of it. Um, I'm also a bit of a a true crime person. And Mm so Uh, I kind of used that part of me and started researching how many states were taking health coaches to court. And it's because they were practicing, you know, um, like medical nutrition therapy, essentially without a license and without the ability to do so. And so that kind of worried me. And even though in my coaching, I've always taken care to, to, um, you know, stay within, I guess, my scope as a health Mm -hmm. coach. I know the majority do not. Mm -mm. And so um, I find that a little
0: scary. So for Um, people who aren't familiar, when you say the scope of a health coach versus the scope of a registered dietitian, what was your scope as a health coach? Like, what were you allowed to be doing with clients? What were you really not supposed to be doing?
1: Sometimes I don't know that that scope is even
0: defined, to be honest. Yeah, I agree with you.
1: Um, I don't know that it's even defined and even like in the, um, you know, I've been in the, in the fitness space for several years now. And I see a lot of, um, personal trainers may go and take like a weekend macro coaching certification or something like that. And when you look at the legalities, some States, um, forbid you to do any like nutrition counseling for profit uh, without being a registered dietitian. I happen to live in one of those states. And so when I started looking at the fine print and it's like, you know, you can't offer any individualized, tailored nutrition counseling for profit unless you're a registered dietitian. And I was like, well, how are all these personal trainers supposedly calculating and tailoring people's macros? And that's not against that. You know, like there's so much gray area that I think in my head, I was like, this just does not feel safe. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also, the more education that I can receive, the better I feel, like the safer I can help someone as well. So I don't know that it was ever really defined. I think the only time that I recall, and I could be wrong, but I'm just thinking back over the last five years. The personal training program does encourage you, like you can obviously say, hey, you need to eat more fruits and vegetables, stay hydrated, you know, the basics. But if someone is asking specific nutrition questions, like how many, you know, of and such do I need to have every day, you need to refer out where I know specifically one of my certifications set the students up to believe that they were the experts. You're writing meal plans and doing all kinds of things. And that was when it was like, yeah, this doesn't feel right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) This doesn't feel right for me.
0: Yeah. And so for anybody listening, in order to become a registered dietitian, you have to go, you have to have a bachelor's degree. There's a new requirement now that you have to have a master's degree. You have to pass the RD exam and you have to complete a 1200 hour supervised internship And in that internship, you're doing different rotations, like you're uh, rotating with WIC or in a community setting, you're rotating in a hospital. A lot of times that's a big bulk of your internship and you're going around to all of the different areas in the hospital so that you can round with physicians and hear about medical conditions and learn about medications and things like that and you're round you're doing a rotation in an outpatient setting where you're viewing um one-on-one nutrition coaching you're going into food service so and then after you're registered you have to stay within the expectations of that RD credential you have to do continuing education you have to um have ethics, continuing education, you can lose your RD if you don't Mm -hmm. maintain a certain standard. And like all other nutrition professionals don't have any type of regulation. And think about somebody who went to school to study nutrition for four or six years versus somebody that has no sort of regulation at all. And maybe in their entire curriculum had a chapter on nutrition. You know, it's scary. And like Letitia was saying, a lot of states, a large majority of them have licensing laws where, Mm -hmm. you know, like in North Carolina, a personal trainer could give basic nutrition advice in terms of like the food pyramid or something like that. They cannot give you individualized advice. And they cannot give you any sort of medical-related advice. Mm-hmm. And a a big thing with dieticians, too, is that when you're doing rotations in the hospital, you learn about other medical conditions. So it is not uncommon for me when I'm working with a client, they're just talking to me about their symptoms or they're just talking to me about their medication. And I can be like, I think that you need to get your thyroid screened or... I think you were misdiagnosed and you might have Cushing's disease mm-hmm. or we need to get you a referral to a gastroenterologist to be screened for celiac disease like there it's nutrition doesn't exist in a vacuum and you mm-hmm. I think that people think that as long as they have had an experience with nutrition they're qualified to give nutrition advice it's kind of scary yeah.
1: I've definitely have found like nutrition is um, everyone has like an emotional connection and like really strong opinions about it. Where like during my um, nursing education, it wasn't I didn't feel that kind of struggle because, you know, the whatever the evidence based, you know, textbook said is, is how it went, you know. And then as more evidence came out, techniques and practices changed. You all got, you know, you did CEUs on it and then you you started evolving and so on. Nutrition feels like a whole different beast and something that like now being on this side of it, um, I I just I do find it a little bizarre of, you know, you would never have this kind of um, practice in the other areas of the medical space. So, for instance, if you impersonated being a nurse, there are some serious (laughs) legal repercussions to that. If you impersonated being a doctor, there are some serious legal, legal repercussions to that. Where nutrition, you could be a celebrity with no, you know, formal knowledge, you can be an influencer, you can have a large following and um, really could be practicing nutrition therapy and kind of impersonating it. And someone asked me recently how I felt. Um, like health coaches and dietitians could uh, coexist. And I really feel like we need to start looking at health coaches like we, we do certified nursing assistants. So like we always have, um, depending on where you're at, we call them CNAs or maybe nurse techs or something like that where like you're there to help the nurse. So we should start looking at health coaches of like, you know, you're, you can be there to troubleshoot like habits and, you know, the day to day. But ultimately, when it comes down to the actual nutrition therapy, that needs to fall under the like dietitian's, uh scope. And I will say as a health coach, um, so I ended up working for a company that had a team of dietitians so that I was able to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even though I did a lot of that one-on-one, um, the nutrition part came, it was governed and overseen by a registered dietitian. And then, um, even after working for that company, uh, and working in my own health coaching, I hired dietitians to consult and, you know, mm-hmm. things like that. So, um, it, for anyone that may be health coaching and is not looking to, to become a registered dietitian, I think it would be really wise to consult a dietitian about the nutrition or refer to them either, either which way. I think that health coaches and dietitians need to be able to code this, but the scope and like what you're able to do as a health coach really should be practiced a little bit more. Um, Cause I feel like a lot of people are potentially hurting individuals without realizing it.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think I wanted to bring this up on the podcast because I think as somebody who is a PCOS patient or somebody that lives with PCOS, it's important for you to know when you're building your support team, who should be on your support team and what role they should be playing. And I think Mm -hmm. it's a really big red flag when you have somebody on your support team who is practicing outside of their scope of practice um, because I strongly believe that the best healthcare professionals are people who believe in an interdisciplinary approach. Yeah. Yeah, And like, if my client is having back pain, I'm going to suggest that they see their physician to get checked out and possibly Mm -hmm. explore physical therapy. I'm not going to be like, here's what I did for my back pain or here's (laughs) what happened Yeah. Susie when she had like, no, like we have to, we have to follow, um, treating you holistically and practicing within our scope of practice. So I
1: find it interesting that people think that becoming a dietitian, you are not trained to think holistically, but that has been every step of my education so far. And the education that I'm receiving, um, in, in the process of becoming a dietitian is drastically different than any of the education I received mm-hmm. in any of my health certification programs. And um what I've noticed like Following what the actual evidence says from the research or even just being trained on how to conduct research and read it so that you know how to proactively uh, dissect research when you see it and not just like cherry pick the things and stuff like that. Like that's been helpful. And even though they were hard at the time uh, and I never want to go back, like all of the health sciences, <laughs> like organic chemistry and, and biochemistry, it really um made me look at food drastically different than I ever had before in a great way. And there's just no way that you could put that in a health coaching certification program oh that gosh, is going to run no. for, yeah, for, no. a, you know, short period of time. Um, it, it takes a lot of of years and studying to really understand nutrition science.
0: Yeah. And I remember when I was in school, the hardest class I had to take was called metabolic nutrition. It was like the organic chemistry of dietetics, kind of like we had to take organic chemistry and physics, too. But like once you truly got into like primarily the dietetics curriculum, that was like the hardest class. And I look back and I'm like, I spent an entire year studying metabolism. Exactly. Like it's just wild to me. And I think like people get so frustrated with dietitians because there are a lot of times when somebody asks me a question, I'm like, well, it depends. And like, (laughs) you know, I need more context and like, well, we would need to look into other things too. But I'm like, that's actually how nutrition works. Like if somebody's just giving you a black and white recommendation, then that,
1: is yeah. concerning to me. It's so funny that you say that because I feel like people get frustrated because my answer is almost always it depends.
0: Yeah. There's <laughs> no like people on Instagram all the time DM me and they're like, is such and such bad for you? And I'm like, I <laughs> where do you even begin yeah, answering that? My, question? It's such a bigger
1: question. Um and I and I don't fault anyone because I think we really have been uh conditioned to think that yeah, nutrition totally. exists mm-hmm. in that vacuum and and uh I know certainly I grew up with you know, black and r- white food rules and mm-hmm. ideologies and things like that. Um, it's honestly, I've had to unlearn a lot of things as much as I have had to learn things throughout the dietetic program that I'm in. Mm-hmm. Um, there like a lot of that, you know, the way we think or, or conditioned to think about like organic and non-GMO, artificial flavors and things like that. Like there's so much of that that my eyes
0: were truly opened up once I had to get into like the deep diving of it all. Mm-hmm. I appreciate you sharing that, though. And I had a similar um, experience. I know you're not quite there yet with in terms of like doing the internship, but I got my degree in the degree. My major was human nutrition, foods, and exercise, but there were different tracks. So I chose the pre med track and um so i didn't the difference between the pre med track and the dietetics track was instead of taking the food service classes i took more biology related like botany and evolutionary biology and stuff like that i didn't know i had adhd at the time so by the time i graduated i was like i cannot do any more school so i worked in school food service for a little while and then i was like i I really should go back to school and get my RD because I wanted to really work in clinical. And because of those licensing laws, I was not qualified to work in a nutrition field in the hospital. So I had to go back to school. And in my mind, I was like, this is the most ridiculous thing. I'd also gotten my master's degree in between there too. So I was like, I have a degree in nutrition and a master's degree and Mm -hmm. you are telling me I need to take a year off of work and do this little internship that I have to pay $14,000 for because it's technically a year in school. I will tell you, in hindsight, the internship was the most valuable piece of my education because you can have like all of the science-related knowledge But Mm -hmm. if you don't see the practical side of putting that into action from a professional level, it's Mm -hmm. hard to be a good dietitian. So hopefully this has, um, for anybody listening, this conversation has really helped you understand the difference in all of the different professionals and credentials Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Yeah. Speaking of your, I know you've done a little bit of a rebrand, um, but you previously had a really big TikTok account and you've openly (laughs) talked about needing to take like a break from social media. I would really love to chat for a second about like social media burnout and kind of what led you to take that break because I know a lot of people listening rely on professionals like you and me for Mm -hmm. education. So I thought it would be really helpful for them to hear this.
1: And you know, it's really interesting how... Already, we're seeing how social media is kind of changing healthcare. You know, earlier, you had mentioned how many health professionals are now on you know, social media and educating on PCOS. And um, especially for someone living with PCOS, it gets extremely limited or zero information on this condition. You're left with what afterwards? Google? Or maybe you go to, you know, Instagram or TikTok or somewhere and look up the hashtag and you're like people are really kind of relying on social media now for mm-hmm. health education and um for the first time ever we have more access to healthcare yeah. providers and their expertise than i've ever seen us before you know we didn't have that mm-hmm. when i started nursing in the early 2000s um so you know social media is really changing healthcare and it's going to be interesting to see where it goes but on the flip side of that as a professional that is, you know, trying to educate on, especially on a topic like PCOS that is so big and has so many, you know, different, um, angles of it. Um, I found myself, um, I have a very double edged sword relationship (laughs) with Mm -hmm. social media. It has brought me in contact with, um, you know, an amazing network of people like you. It has brought me amazing people that I've worked with and just like friends and supporters, people I probably would have never met if it mm-hmm. wasn't for the connection that social media gave me. But it also brought in a lot of uh, toxicity and um, a lot of just really negative emotion. And mm-hmm. so um, I think at the height, of the pandemic, everybody was jumping on the TikTok train and I did that as well. And um, of course, my platform uh, for a while has been solely based upon PCOS. So that's what I talked about. And I created that platform. When I looked at TikTok, you know, you would see these trends and you would see whether it was like a dance trend or a skit trend or something like that, The way I was looking at it at the time was I could do that, I can learn that dance and do that trend, but plug in PCOS facts and maybe people will get that education or Mm -hmm. can I turn this funny skit into something that's relatable to PCOS so that it can reach people. So I'm not just on here, you know, doing dances. I'm actually educating. That was the whole basis of me coming to TikTok. And I was able over like a year to two year time span, I gained um, up to 250,000 followers, which, you know, a lot of people, you know, perceive that as a lot of following. And what I learned over that time, the more my account grew, the worse my mental health became. Wow. Um, And it really became to a point, um, you know, I... I have a lot of healthcare experience. I'm a nurse. <laughs> I'm a, I have lived experience with PCOS. Um, and I'm also, I think part during that time, I'd already obtained my associate's degree in nutrition and food science and was like in the process of continuing my education. And I have a lot of experience as like legislative PCOS advocacy. And I had a huge network of doctors, dietitians, and professionals all over the world that prioritize PCOS. So I could be a big wealth of knowledge and resource. But in the comments, it was always every single day I opened up my phone and I was either being uh you know being condescended or someone wanted to argue about something because you know I was using evidence-based information that didn't align with their beliefs and then it was um it was just like every I couldn't open up my phone a single day without feeling like a punching bag. I was either having to constantly prove myself and You know, my expertise, or constantly have to, you know, cite sources to back up why I was saying something. It was just, it was so draining. It got to the Mm -hmm. point it was not fun anymore. And I just could not um, take another day of being put in that position. Like I came to that platform to try to create change. And while there, was always a group that supported me and I appreciate that. I just could not go another day of opening up my phone and putting myself in that space of, I know I'm going to get, I'm going to, someone's going to try to fight me today. Someone's going to be very rude and talk down to me. And um, it just impacted me. So I started having panic attacks and I just said, you know what, I, I've got to leave. This, this platform is not for me, Um At one point in time, I thought I would just take a break and come back because I had been doing that. Like, I'll take a month off or I'll take a few weeks off. And I was like, you know, maybe I just need like a long break and I'll come back. Um, It's been a while. I don't ever see myself going back. (laughs) I know it's been like over a year since I left the platform. I don't think I will ever return to that platform specifically. Yeah,
0: I don't. Think people really realize when you see a professional on social media, they are treating that content like it's part of their job. It's part of mm-hmm. their marketing plan. It's a great opportunity for your audience to get to know you and your style before they work with you. And of course, like we want to give information as well. Mm-hmm. Like we see that there are, are gaps there. But the negativity and like the rude comments that as your account grew my Instagram account is not nearly as big as your TikTok was, but I'm just like, number one, you would never talk to somebody like this in real life if you were meeting them in person. And number two, you would not talk to a physician this way, your Mm -hmm. physical therapist this way, your nurse this way if they were Mm -hmm. coming in the room. And I think there's like something with nutrition where because everyone eats and nutrition affects everyone, like you said, there's a personal connection. It is not a hall pass for people to just be nasty online. And like, Mm -hmm. I just feel like it's so unfortunate because we're seeing like I'm seeing with my colleagues that a lot of dealing with some negativity on social media is like causing them to either not want to use social media anymore or even honestly rethinking their career choice and like wanting to switch to something else?
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it literally put me in a space where, um, I, like, I got to a point where I couldn't turn back from it, you know, like I, cause I kept thinking, oh, you know, I'll take a break and it'll be, it'll be fine. I still to this day can't find the like excitement to create content like I used to have. Um, so I'm like forever, I feel like I'm forever changed because of that experience. And, it's just super draining. So I did have to, like, I had those thoughts of, you know, do I really want to become a dietitian? Do I want to stay in the PCOS space? since it, you know, put me in this, you know, poor mental health? And, you know, uh, you're also thinking, of like, how can I help people and continue the mission that I have as a dietitian, maybe without, you know, social media? Like, it really had, mm-hmm. I've, I've had to sit, sit with it a lot and what a a lot of people don't realize is it wasn't just like the blatantly negative stuff it was also like the draining of people feeling entitled to to like access me all the time. So, you know, like if I took too long to comment back or um, if I referred them to one of my services that was going to cover what they were asking, they would get upset with me. So I literally felt like every day I was just a big punching bag and I was there to serve people and not receive anything back in return. Mm-hmm. and I don't know if anybody I'm sure a lot of us have had some like horrible jobs that have kind of like put you in that space but like that's not a thought that you're not thriving in your life when you are like that all the time um so I thought uh, Instagram had always been what I considered home base like that was as always before TikTok that was my largest platform and so I thought okay like I will only focus on Instagram That these these are the people that love me the most and and I still like I still have like after a shock of, of TikTok and and I still had a hard time on that platform to the point that I just left. I, I didn't even tell anybody I was leaving. I just, for almost six months, I just jumped off of everything. Um, And that was probably the best thing I think I could have ever done. Uh, I actually wanted to take longer time off, but I was doing an event and I didn't want to like go to the event and say, hey, you know, follow, connect with me on social media. And then you realize I haven't been there for months. Yeah. (laughs) So I came back. um, But my idea of how I will manage social media, especially like in the future, the private practice dietitian, it's forever changed. It will, like, I want to build my private practice up where social media is kind of like the last thought. In the in the process of, of order of the way that things are run, mm-hmm. um, I love social media. It allows us to connect with people. It allows us to educate people that didn't get the education that they deserve or the care that they deserve. Like that was the whole point of being here. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way that we're treated by the by the audience is is, is c- going to send everyone into burnout. And I'm like you. I've talked to so many professionals, from doctors to dietitians. Um, Therapists, like everyone is feeling it
0: mm-hmm. you brought up a lot of important points <laughs> yeah. and we also do a lot of advocacy work and mm-hmm. that's volunteering our time yeah. Um. you know when we did advocacy day in person like i paid to fly to For dc i took several days off of work and mm-hmm. we continue to do advocacy work and charging just like a standard fee for what we're doing does give us the space to be able to do that.
1: And I think most people that I've talked to and like one of my visions, like I I hope that I can get build my private practice up to a a place where I can offer more things to people who can't like access monthly fees and services and stuff like that. That just takes time, you know. Um, And like you said, like there, there are things that we do volunteer and such that you're not making an income on. Um, But, uh, you know, there's also that other side of like, we shouldn't have to explain, you know, you know what I mean? Like I shouldn't have to like tell you that for you to uh, to see the value and who I am. So it's just really challenging. And I think that that's probably one of the big nuances of social media is because like, when they go to to your page and see your content, they could literally create this whole entire opinion of of what they think you are and who you are and what you stand for based off of a seven second video versus like looking at you as a whole person and what all you are doing for the community and giving back and so on. Um, So I I do find that that has its challenges too.
0: Yeah, and I do wanna give a disclaimer, like I think anything health related should be free and be very accessible. Mm -hmm. The reason it's not is because of systemic issues. Issues that have to do with the government, that have to do with health insurance. Mm -hmm. These are all things that we shouldn't expect the burden to fall on small business owners. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why we are so heavily involved in PCOS advocacy Mm -hmm. and like, yeah, I do give scholarships. I do actually a fair amount of things and no cost, but I have to have some sort of way to like sustain myself too. Yeah,
1: yeah. no, yeah. I, I can definitely see that. And uh, I think the people that see your value and support you, like I've, I've the, the people that I have that are like that in my audience, they, they get it, you know? And so sometimes I think the ones that feel that way, one are probably coming from a place of hurt maybe at that mm-hmm. point in time. And then also like at the end of the day, it's probably not the kind of person I could have made the best impact working with anyway. So, mm-hmm. um, but it still doesn't take away the fact that that stuff can kind of compile on the mental toll of being a professional that is on social media these days. Um, I, I definitely think that we're going to see more in the future. Um, like, more conversations, I hope, about setting boundaries as a professional mm-hmm. in the social media space. I even um, have like asked my my friends who are working in the mental health space of like, are therapists starting to like niche into like influencers or content creators or health professionals on social media because I can see a lot of people are going to be needing some support um, just because it can be such a draining uh, part of our career.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, Well, I'm curious from being someone who has a lot of expertise in PCOS, what is, if you could pick one piece of nutrition misinformation that really, you really can't stand, what would it be? Oh, that's that's so good. Um, I, I don't know if it's like a one specific thing,
1: I just don't like the word, you know, like avoid this food or avoid this group. Like the, the mentality of you have PCOS, so you need to avoid X, Y, Z. That one probably bothers me the most. Um, It's not just one specific food. It's just that statement in general, because kind of like you mentioned earlier, it depends. So if we were to say, oh, if you have PCOS, you have to avoid sugar, well, it, it, it depends. It's not like we're going to recommend that you eat a bag of sugar every single day, but there are so many ways that you can incorporate sugar into your nutrition and still manage your PCOS. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like what foods that truly need to be avoided are based on the individual, you know, if they have an allergy or, you know, intolerance or a sensory issue or something like that. It's not as simple of like, oh, you have to avoid these foods. And I think like if you were to go to Google and try to come up with a comprehensive list of all the foods that we, quote unquote, should be avoiding for PCOS, you would really be... Probably in a pit of despair because it would have taken away everything. <laughs> so that yeah. one that one bothered me the most. I'm sorry, it's not like a straightforward line, but it's just no, that, I, idea that makes so of much sense. Foods though. for PCOS. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: I also there's so much nuance around nutrition, and mm-hmm. I feel like it's such a diet culture thing to be like, okay, sugar can impact your insulin levels. Nobody can eat sugar. Sugar is right, bad for right. PCOS, and honestly, even some of like some other PCOS professionals who I really respect and feel like overall they give great advice, sugar is like a big one. They're like, avoid Mm -hmm. sugar, try to limit sugar. And I'm like, even if somebody did avoid sugar, like that's not going to, that in and of itself isn't going to help them manage their PCOS, Mm -hmm. you know, like that's not the factor. Like they're so, we have to look at like the overall big picture of things, Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and that's really hard to do. I mean, that's the reason why you you, you work with people one on one, so you can have like those conversations. Mm-hmm. That's really hard to do online. Um, you know, of it, sometimes I think that we look at food as if we're eating the certain ingredients or food groups in isolation too. You yeah. know, mm-hmm. it's like you who who is really sitting down eating spoonfuls of sugar by itself you know but if you are using that in a recipe that is broken up into numerous different servings and you're having that you know recipe along with other foods that are helping you balance your blood sugar why was why were we telling you to avoid it at the Mm -hmm. end of the day like so like you said there's so many nuances and it depends kind of situation um and i always to think about like If you had someone maybe that was consuming really high volumes of sugar on a daily basis, maybe to them limiting sugar is uh, an appropriate thing to discuss. But what if you have someone who is already in the mentality of like they don't consume a lot of sugar on a daily basis and now you're telling them to avoid it and you're like so you're just removing more and more and more and more to what are they left with? Mm -hmm. So you never know where people are starting from.
0: Yeah. And I think even if I was meeting with somebody and they were eating large quantities of added sugar, I would want to know a lot more about that. Like the advice wouldn't be, you're eating too much sugar. You need to cut that out. It would be what's going into your food choices. Right. What is your, what's accessible to you? That's what I
1: was just going to say. Who knows what, what they have access to?
0: Yeah, like also, what is your relationship with food like? Because for a lot of people that I work with that do consume a lot of sugar, Mm -hmm. a lot of that comes back to a mental restriction factor, feeling Mm -hmm. like it's off limits, the last supper mentality. Like, there's so much to explore there. It's not just about like, the quantity. So if somebody is listening and they are feeling really overwhelmed with everything they're seeing online, if you could pick like one nutrition or wellness tip for listeners, what would that be?
1: Mm.
0: Um,
1: uh, One nutrition or wellness. Since we just kind of covered nutrition a little bit, I'm going to go on like the like movement and such, if mm-hmm. that's okay. Yeah. Um, Because this is something that I talk about a lot. And um, usually the response is I've never heard it. Uh, discussed in this way is, especially in the PCOS space, I think we are often told that we have to move more, which kind of goes back to like, you're not even asking how they're moving to begin with to to be able to give that advice. And um, something that I see a lot in the space of like, people with PCOS may go to personal trainers or health coaches to try to improve their PCOS. And usually they look at them and say, hey, you have PCOS, this is going to be harder. So I'm going to have to train you harder. So I see that a lot. It's happened to me and it happens all the time. And something that I've really found to be true is not allowing your physical activity, your movement, your exercise mirror your lifestyle. And what I mean by that is, if you are in a very tough season, maybe you're in a season where you aren't sleeping well, you're on the go all the time, you're experiencing high stress and it's really hard for you to get enough nourishment in, in a day. That's probably not the best time to also be pushing your body to do intense workouts and, you know, uh, working out long durations and things like that. That's a season where you need to maybe focus on yoga or mobility or just going for a walk and, you know, really slowing things down. And then when the season opens up and life's, you know, kind of on easy street and you have, you know, your sleep is going great, you're well nourished and stress levels aren't quite as high that might be the time that maybe you go for, you know, a little bit more frequency, intensity, duration, and so on. And I don't really see enough people talking about that. It just seems like in general, we are just telling people go, 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 go. And what happens outside of your movement, your exercise, or whatever you want to call it, that really dictates a lot of what you should be doing when it comes to physical movement. I noticed now there's a, in the PCOS space, there's a lot of like bickering back and forth on whether or not high intensity exercises are right or wrong for PCOS. And I don't think that people are looking at they're just focusing in on the exercise and not considering what happens the other hours of the day and Mm -hmm. weeks of that person's lifestyle. So that's just something that I share a lot because I don't think enough people are hearing it is that your movement needs to be the opposite of what your lifestyle is kind of looking like.
0: Yeah. I think that's a great tip. And to piggyback off of that, something that I talk to my clients a lot about is removing the moralization around Mm -hmm. movement and, it is okay if like you're not moving your body. And I I think a yeah. lot of people need to hear that, that we have so many different areas of wellness and yes, yeah. body movement can improve PCOS symptoms, but it's not the only thing. So yeah. it's also, we have to look at the topic of ableism and like how are people able to move their bodies too? Like that's another big topic of discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, but You know, I have had clients that I worked with where we needed to take exercise off the table, Mm -hmm. like it needed to just not be a factor. And so I think really tapping into like what you need in that moment in time is probably going to be how you can discover the best thing for you. I think a lot
1: of people are surprised when they work with me, like the first month is like you said, it's off the table, Mm -hmm. like at at least it may, it may be more than that, but like, you know, and, um, like you said with the, like people do have limitations and I don't think that that gets considered enough. I'm personally dealing with a back injury and having asthma issues. Mm -hmm. So being able to do cardio the way that I did a few years ago is off the table for me. And if I had, you know, a coach or a trainer that expected me to, you know, you know, run or, or do hit or something like that. Um, it would probably put me in a horrible mental space because I would feel like I'm not valuable enough since I can't do that. Um, there's just there's a lot of emphasis on physical activity. And I can see the the benefits of it, but I just don't think we're thinking about all of the other things that connect to that. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm glad that you said that it's okay to, like, rest your body. You can't improve your PCOS when you're in burnout. It's just mm-hmm. not going to happen. And yeah. so um definitely more rest and listening to it, which is okay. And I do feel like that messaging is very against the grain of what mm-hmm. you're going to hear in most, like, media spaces
0: yeah and uh, oftentimes though this expectation for exercise Mm -hmm. is what causes a lot of people to kind of stick in the stay in this negative cycle of like not being able to maintain anything consistent Mm
1: -hmm. yeah no i definitely have noticed that um with a lot of my clients of like you know maybe they're like really anxious to start like a more intense like weightlifting program or you know or something like that and it's like why is that so important to you? Like when you know that it's not a good time right now, you don't really have the capacity for it. Your mobility is limited, but you think that the only benefit that you're going to have is if you can do like some hardcore weightlifting sessions. Like, let's talk about that. like, mm-hmm. why, why do you feel that way? Um, and it's kind of like, well, I just thought that that was the right thing. And it's like, but we're improving blood sugars. Your you know, cycle's coming in months. Like things are going great, even with more rest. Mm-hmm. than what it probably would be if we added that on and you, if you don't have the capacity for it I think it's okay to say that you don't have the capacity for it I think mm-hmm. a lot of us are too afraid to say I because you've been told no excuses no excuses mm-hmm. and all mm-hmm. these other I've really struggled with that this last semester I was taking six classes I'm driving four-hour commute to college and oh I was not able to to be as active as what I wanted to be. I'm sitting in a car, I'm sitting in a desk at school, and then I'm in my office at home. And it really opened up my eyes. And um instead of beating myself up about it, I was like, you know, I just didn't have the capacity for it. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. Um I was able to focus on some other things. But um it, the messaging, I should have been really upset with myself according to social media. Yeah. You do you think what I'm saying? I should have been you know, making, instead of making excuses, I guess I was supposed to sacrifice sleep or time with my kids in order to work out. I don't know what the world wanted me to do, but I was like, that's, that messaging is really harmful.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it is so harmful. And you know, the, it kind of reminds me of the saying of like, we all have the same 24 hours in a day. It's like, no, we really, we really don't because we have to, we have to factor in like so many things of what people have to do to get through their day. And Mm -hmm,
1: yeah, yeah, you just gave a perfect example of that. When you go through like those higher, like, you know, when you, you're expected to perform on a higher level or maybe you have like higher stress and stuff like that. I think sleeping was probably the best tool that i had during that time compared to anything um you know compared to like going to a gym or something like that i just needed to sleep and and give my body the rest that it was asking for
0: Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah, sleep is so important for hormones Mm -hmm. well Letitia thank you so much for coming on the podcast please tell everyone how they can connect with you online do you have anything exciting coming up yeah, so um,
1: I just went through some some rebranding. So now on social media, uh, most especially Instagram, I will be at Endocrine Collective. Um, currently, we're working on all of this rebranding and um, working on getting a website up where I will have PCOS uh, focused blogs and recipes and things like that there. Um, and within, after the next two years, I'll have a a private practice (laughs) going, um, you know, my vision, honestly, you know, like Sam, I know like you and I both see the disparities in care. And so looking at the private practice, I kind of looked at it as, you know, I don't want to just work, like by myself, like, can I bring in nurse practitioners or PAs and like uh, mental health providers? Like I wanted to bring in a collection of people to try to offer more. Um, maybe someone lives in a place like I do that there isn't anything available, but they can access this online, which I think is what's really great about our times is we can help people virtually. But um, but on Instagram, Endocrine Collective is where you're going to
0: find me in the meantime. Awesome. Well, I will put that in the show notes. Thank Thank you you so much for chatting today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Nourished with PCOS podcast. Be sure to hit subscribe so you can catch new episodes. I'd also be so grateful if you left a review and rating for the pod as well. See you next Wednesday.